Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Eddie Ray, founder and managing director of Progressive Sports, an organization that encourages and helps children to be physically active. Eddie, hello. Hi, Matthew. Thank you very much for coming on to the program today. Uh, Now, normally we'd go directly into the subject of leadership. Considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we should start there. How has this affected your organization? Uh, COVID has had an impact on on our business, as as many businesses up and down the the country. Um, I mean, it's impacted some of our services. Obviously, we've been able to uh, deliver some of our services and obviously get out there and, uh, you know, inspire and encourage children to be physically active. Most of our work is with schools and in the community. So we still continue to support schools throughout the the pandemic. And uh, we've been part of that support mechanism that's uh, kept schools uh, up and running, but I'm looking forward into the future, and um, you know I'm positive about what the the future will bring. Uh, we have got a few battle scars, but we're still ready to roll up our sleeves and 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 keep uh, keep moving forward as a business. Now, when we talk about COVID, we are often talking about the restrictions placed uh, around uh, people's way of life. As an organization that's looking to get children out and active, uh, how is this uh, affecting uh, the mission, uh, especially when so many uh, children are stuck in uh, inner city flats, unable to uh, go into outdoor space? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I think schools um, are a large part of what we do is in terms of working with schools, engaging schools, and, and children obviously throughout this, you know, pandemic have still been or most children have still been attending schools. And I think it's um, up to us um, and up to schools and parents to, you know, realise the importance of, of physical activity and getting children out, getting some fresh air, you know, whether that's going for a walk or a run or a ride on your bike. Um, it's, it's really, really important. And I think um, no more so than, 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 than currently, really. It's not just your physical, it's your obviously mental well-being and um, obviously affects a lot of things. So I think it's, um, it's, it's vitally important that, that, that children and um, those people that can influence still continue to, um, you know, bang that drum on the importance of uh, physical activity with our, with our children. Now, of course, we are here to discuss the concept of leadership. I always like to start uh, this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Uh, The word leader is somebody that um, very much sort of leads from the front, um, kind of whether it's, um, you know, an institute or a business sort of leads by by example, um, is there to sort of set the tone, create the DNA within the, the organization. Um, is somebody that um, people can can look up to, look for inspiration, um, can can manage people, uh, and get the best out of people. Ultimately, so they know how to, um, you know, man manage the people to ensure that they they do their job to the best of their best of their ability. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Um, I say my personal leadership style is. Um, one of leading from example. Um, I'm definitely not probably somebody that's going to be jumping up and around the office and, you know, delivering motivational talks. Um, I think my actions um, 
I speak louder than my words. It's very much I do like to lead that way. Um, you know, lead by example. Um, very much hold myself to account. You know, if I say I'm going to do something, then we definitely do follow through and, and I ensure that that is done. So I suppose I'm leading the team in that respect. Um, setting our vision, setting our goals and, you know, holding myself and the team accountable to, to achieve what we what we set out as a business. Now, how would you say you came to your style of leadership? Did you have a particular role model or have you been shaped more by circumstance? I think um, maybe more circumstance. I mean, I have come across, um, you know, some good business leaders, uh, teachers, um, you know, managers of sports teams. I suppose it's a hybrid of a number of things, really, just my own sort of experiences. And I suppose you take the good bits, the bad bits, uh, the bits that you like, and you kind of wrap it all up into your own sort of style and, and, and personality. And I think there's lots of people that we can all look up to, um, you know, whether that's in a sporting sort of field or in a business field. And, you know, I'm an avid reader. I'm an avid uh, learner. Um, I'm constantly looking at ways that I can improve myself to become a better leader. And what are the ways in which young people looking to take on leadership responsibilities could improve their chances? I think, um, you know, just the little things really, whether that's, you know, becoming, joining a a sports team and and having a voice um, or just, I don't know, just socialising with peers and stuff like that or or becoming um, a monitor at school um, or part of the uh, school council. They're all little ways that obviously children in particular can obviously start to develop the, those leadership qualities. Um, I think it's important that we teach children the right sort of mindset, um, you know, around growth and around learning and, and developing and improvement. I think that's an important thing that we should should teach children that they can set up that right character for them to become a leader or, you know, face the challenges that we face as we go through uh, childhood into adulthood. Do you operate any mentorship schemes within your business uh, for your other staff members? Yeah, we've got, well, part of our operations team, you know, we've got uh, mentors that mentor our sort of less experienced and people that are coming through, through the ranks. So they'll, help with their own professional development. They've got uh, somebody to buddy up with to support them and help them with their own um, own development and, uh, you know, any challenges they might have, any things they want to run through uh, with somebody. So it's not their direct line manager. It's somebody else uh, in the team that's more senior than them, but they can lean on for, for support. And I think that's an important cog in our business to, you know, develop growth and improvement within our staff. Now, unfortunately, our time together isn't unlimited, and we are about to uh, run out of it. But I'd like to go through a few quick-fire questions with you before we get there. Firstly, uh, if you were to suggest uh, a singular person in business or sport for young people to look up to, who would that be? Um, That's a very good good question. I don't. I mean, I suppose it can be. It can be anybody. It could be a parent. I, I was thinking about this recently, and I think you know somebody that's in terms of leadership that's doing absolutely phenomenal things with a, with a football team, and it's somebody that's worth actually studying a little bit more. Um, is Jurgen Klopp? You know, taking what was a team that were you know 
Um, traditionally, I've got a great history, but we're struggling for, for years. And I think he's really molded and developed and improved that team and single-handedly. Um, you know, I think his way, his ways of doing things and the culture that he's brought into the football club, um, I think has been really, really good. And I think he's he's a really good example of someone that's um, you know shown great leadership and actually improved uh, an organisation that's now you know if not probably the best. Uh, best team in the world so I think uh, he would be a good person to, to look at How do you resolve conflict? Um, conflict within the team um, I think obviously we'd resolve that obviously on a, on a one-to-one basis with them um, if you know if there's conflict with a member of staff uh, then we'd obviously look at resolving that on a one-to-one basis but from a from a management point of view obviously we have uh, a management team that steer the business and I think conflict within the team um, is not a bad thing. Um, we certainly don't want to lead the business down a path that might not be the right path. And we don't want a, a group of yes people that agree with uh, myself um, you know, or other people in the business if it's not the right decision. So I think a little bit of conflict, a little bit of heat within the team is not, not a bad thing as long as it's done, uh, done, done correctly. And what does the next 12 months have in store for progressive sports? We're just continuing to evolve the business. Um, I mean, we've obviously had to take a step back, reflect on the business, ensure that we're profitable, ensure that we can continue to grow. Uh, but I'm very much, you know, looking forward. There's, there's opportunities around supporting schools with uh, pupil health and well-being. We've got various projects and stuff that we're running. Um, we've got a new business that we've launched to support pupil health and well-being and we're putting resources into schools and training into schools to support teachers to be able to uh, teach this. Um, so, you know, we're, we're very confident in what we're doing as a business and we will just, I suppose, move with the ever-changing landscape and just ensure that we're obviously true to our core focus as a business and we continue to involve, continue to improve um, and serve our customers with the best possible service that we can provide. Eddie, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on the program today. And, of course, it would be great to have you back on the show at some point in the near future. But for now, I think all that's left to say is goodbye. Goodbye, Matthew. Thank you. That was Eddie Ray, founder and managing director of Progressive Sports. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname, ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, 
you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's 
easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London. And to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point though, because there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing 
team. Uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um 
and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on, yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move. With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think. I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them. 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them wear <laughs> red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um absolutely. no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.